So today we're in week two of our series, He Said What? And it's kind of about um, ostentatious co uh, comments that Jesus made. Because there are some times that he makes statements and we're like, I don't understand what the guy's talking about. And even the disciples and those who are around him every day had a hard time understanding some of these topics and some of these phrases. The phrase we want to talk about today is one that in without context is very difficult to understand. He said these words right from, these are red letter words. I don't have a trick Bible. Yours says the same thing mine says. These are the words of Jesus. I came to bring a sword. Came to bring a sword? This is the guy who was prophesied that he was the Prince of Peace. This is the guy who will read in John chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. He talks about the idea that he is peace, that there's a sense of peace. Yet he's talking about a sword that he's going to bring. Now, people will read scriptures like this and what we talked about last week, and they'll say, look, the Bible's full of inaccuracies. The Bible is full of contradictory statements. How can you believe that garbage? Nothing about it can be true. To keep people in line and to keep authority over them. Listen, all of these contradictory statements prove that there's nothing real about the Bible. And they'll particularly talk to scriptures like this. Uh, we're, today we'll figure out and we'll discuss why I don't believe that's true. So John chapter 14, verse 27 says this, Peace I leave with you. By the way, this is my wife's probably favorite scripture in all of the Bible. If she ever ministers with you, she will bring up this scripture from one time or another. It says, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. These are the words of Jesus he says, I'm going to leave you with a sense of peace. I don't give you peace as the world takes away, or as the world would give a peace that would fade, but I give you a lasting sense of peace. But he did also say these words, that I've come to bring a sword, and it gets much worse than that. It gets much worse than the phrase that he's about to say, and we'll get there in just a moment. But to understand why Jesus used the idea that he came to bring peace, he was fulfilling, he was fulfilling the prophetic scriptures. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Jesus as our peace. He is the prince, prophesied prince of peace. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9 says it this way in his own words, blessed are the peacemakers. So peace is part of the conversation, that we would be peacemakers, that we as those who follow Jesus would be those who bring peace to the world and peace to a given situation. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the disciples are trying to figure out this world, and what comes to them is this idea, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans is cutting to the quick. It's getting all the fat out of the way and saying that through Jesus Christ, there's a sense of peace that comes in us and on us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 18 gives the idea that for he himself, meaning Jesus, is our peace. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, let the peace of Christ rule or reign in our heart. So there's this idea that Jesus is the prince of peace, that he brings peace, he expects us to be peacemakers, that there's a peace of God that should rule our heart, it should apprehend our heart, it should take over who we are. There is a strict dichotomy being played out in the Scriptures. A strict dichotomy of who Jesus is. He is peace, yet He is ultimate authority. That Jesus is peace, yet He is a strong ruler. That Jesus is peace, yet He is unwavering in His purpose. I call it the velvet brick, the velvet brick principle. 
that you have an internal resolve that is solid, it's resolute, it's unmovable, but yet on the outside you're soft, you're comfortable, you're approachable, that you allow people to come to you, you're not some mean, ogres type of an individual, but you allow folks to come to you softly. In fact, Jesus was so soft on his exterior that even the children would run up and sit in his lap and the disciples at one point said, what are you doing? This guy is important. This guy is a leader. You can't just run up and sit on his lap. And Jesus said, leave him alone. Let the children come to me. So there's a sense of peace. We often assume that a peacemaker is someone who's soft and appeasing. We often assume that the idea of peace is someone who is soft. There's a, there's a truth, and I know some people don't like this reality, but people who are very much appeasing generally in, in a very general sense, might not be you if you're an appeasing type of person, but generally people who are very appeasing make a lot less money and they're a lot less on the leadership scale. Why is that? Because they don't take the necessary steps, the hard road steps to have that internal resolve be resolute. As peacemakers, we've been told in our world that we are to be soft to be pushovers, and especially if we're peacemakers for the sake of the gospel, that we are to, we're to back down at every impasse. We're to back down every time there's an argument. You know, there used to be on the side hip of a man, especially a law officer in the Old West, there used to be a side piece on his hip that was called a peacemaker, a cult peacemaker. There was nothing soft about that piece of steel. There was nothing soft about what that revolver represented. That the moment that that, that, that sheriff would pull that peacemaker out, settle the heart. Those who are of God's peace should be pushovers. Nowhere in Scripture do we read that we should be a pushover. Often we see these peacemakers being those who are appeasing others around them to settle and calm arguments and to settle and calm hearts. Yet Jesus says these words in Matthew 10, verse 34. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. It's our scripture, our primary for today. He says this, I've come to bring a sword. He said, first, don't think that I've come to bring peace upon this earth. Wait a minute, wait, wait, Jesus. You just said, and we have this prophetic announcement through Isaiah, that you're the prince of peace. You've already talked about the idea that we should be peacemakers. We've we, we've figured this out, that you are a God of peace and that you bring peace to settle the hearts of humanity. Yet you are saying in your own words, Matthew 10, 34, don't think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. Don't think that I've come to bring peace on this earth. So what could Jesus possibly mean? What could he mean if he's telling the world, the world that would hear him at the time, those who heard him in his own voice, not the written word passed through generation, but those who heard him intentionally from his own words, I didn't come to bring peace on this earth, and I've come to bring a sword. Matthew 10, 38 and verse B, I've come to bring a sword and not peace. So more disturbingly, we have to ask ourselves, what does this sword represent? If Jesus didn't come to honestly be someone who settled arguments, who settled disputes, who drew all people together. Remember, we sing that kumbaya moment. Jesus, let's sit around the campfire, have a kumbaya session. Everyone get along, get together. Hands across America. We're just going to live in peace. You know, that's not at all 
what Jesus is talking about. In fact, he's directly speaking against the idea that you and I as peacemakers or that he as the Prince of Peace would, be, would bring a sense of peace or calmness or tranquility from one person to the next. Jesus didn't come to solve the fight in your marriage. Jesus didn't simply come to fix the fighting that you have in your interpersonal relationships. Jesus didn't come so that Muslims and Christians would just get along. Jesus didn't come and was beaten and hung on the cross so that he could kind of give us uh, philosophical waxlings like Rodney King and say, why can't we all just get along? Jesus came with a sword. believer. It's the matter of belief in Christ that the whole world was against itself. Each of us, each household could be divided against itself. And in fact, Jesus even says, for the sake of this gospel, it might cause a mother and a son to be against one another, or a father and a daughter to be against one another, or a sister and a brother to be against one another. But don't fear because there's brothers, there's mothers, there's sisters, there's, there's fathers in the kingdom. And it it kind of hurts our heart to think of the idea that for the sake of the gospel, that Jesus would bring such a hardline wedge, a hardline sword, that it would cut even families, the the closest social unit on planet Earth, that it would cut even families apart. Yet he tells us that's exactly what can happen. The sword symbolizes the authority of the gospel. The sword simply symbolizes the authority, the truth, the gospel carries, that it is so sharp. We read later that the word of God is like a sword, that it's so sharp that it can cut even through bone and marrow, that it can separate the heart and the intent of a human person, that the word of God or this gospel is so strict in its nature that it cuts away the fat and gets right to the core of the issue. Mythically, as we read throughout Scripture and as they would have been very well aware of, that the sword is the sharpest of all weapons. At that time, they kind of gauged their authority based on a sword. We all have mythical concepts of a sword. We have the sword in the stone, where if you're the right man of the right character, you can pull it out of that rock and it would, it would lead way in battle, that it would be such a sharp and devastating tool that would make a king. It would literally be a king maker. And in the same sense, Jesus is saying, I come with a sword. I come with a sword that of the right character, of the right heart, that when it's yielded by my hand, that it makes me a king. It makes him literally king maker. The sword is important because it shows us the impartiality of justice and the correction of the offender. That Jesus came to bring justice, not the way we see justice. We see justice in our world, especially today in our current context, that everyone get the same results no matter the effort they put in. That's real justice in our culture today. It's the equality of outcome. Jesus never said there would be an equality of outcome. He said there would be an equality of opportunity, but never an equality of outcome. Jesus didn't say that regardless of how you live your life or regardless if you believe in him or not, that we'll all find heaven as our home. Jesus wasn't a universalist. In fact, he said something very specific. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. This is the sword that Jesus is talking about. There's a settling of peace in our religious ideology that says if we are at peace with one another, that we can believe whatever we want and everyone's just going to find their way to heaven. 
Hallelujah. Kumbaya. The problem is nothing about that is true. Jesus is making a definitive statement. He's saying of who he is and of the gospel that he preaches and the message that he brought to this earth, that there is a hard line divide, that he brings this sword of authority, that ultimately justice will rule. And the justice that he wields with this sword is the idea that he will cut away anything that is not of him, that he will cut asunder anything that is not in line with this gospel. I think the problem is we've come to a world where we're soft and statements like this are so hard. It's hard to hear the idea that Jesus came not to bring peace, even though he's a peacemaker. It's hard to believe that Jesus came into the world to bring a sword, even though he says later on, we're going we're gonna to cut these swords down into plowshares and we're going to live in harmony together. We see the, the offshoot ideas that Jesus came to settle and quench the war that is in our heart, and we assume that spreads to the world and that it's even intentional for the rest of the world to just fall into the centerpiece of peace. Yet he said the only way you'll find true peace is through him, and anyone that doesn't choose him will be off. They will be chaff. They will be blown away. That they will be those who are separated from the wheat, from where he is, from his life, from, his, from the source that he is. The sword is, is a mode of correction. Necessarily peace and to settle in a heart that we're all... has a definite edge that he's come to correct the way we think and believe. There are things about the gospel of Jesus Christ that correct how we believe and how we think. Let me give you an example. Love your enemies. I'm like, no, no. Pray for those who persecute you. Are you crazy? No, I don't want to do that. And some of you have heard me say, my enemies, that's what the Mississippi River's for. People trip and fall all the time. I'm joking. Depends on who it is, but I'm mostly joking. <laughs> but in our heart of hearts, many of us have this feeling, God, you've told me to pray for my enemies. You've told me to pray for those who come against me. I don't want to do it. He says, there's no, there's no question here. There's a divide. There's a hard divide. You will either do what I say or you are not of me. In fact, he later says that if you live out his commandments, that you are of him. If you don't, you don't know him. He makes it so hard-lined at times that he has to use words like this, that I've come not to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword for us to understand the division. He will have his way. There's a, there's a concept in theology, or there's a concept in the Bible that Jesus is preeminent, meaning that he is first or he is nothing at all. Jesus cannot be second in any area of our life. His word is either first or primary or it is nothing. And every moment we choose something else over the word of God, every moment we choose anything in this life over Jesus, we have now made him less than secondary. He's fallen off the map. He's not even on the list that we've chosen because he must be first. And in his statement saying that he is a sword, that he hasn't come to bring peace, what he is saying is that this world around us is always in tribulation. It's always in turmoil. It's always fighting amongst itself. And that's not what he has come to deal with. When the angels shouted from heaven 
And they proclaimed that God had finally come in flesh and human form, that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And they shouted to those shepherds. When they shouted, peace be with you, it had nothing to do with peace between man and man. It had everything to do with peace between God and man. That finally our hearts would be settled. That finally we could have a way to God, to the king of the universe to the God who flung the heart, the stars in their sockets, to the God who carved the ocean borders with his fingers, that we could finally be so in tandem with him that we wouldn't have to worry about him receiving us, that we could come boldly, as the Bible says, to the throne of grace, that we could come to his throne knowing that he accepts us, he approves of us just the way we are, but he loves us way too much to leave us where we are. That he says, I I accept you, I love you, come into my family, come into my throne room, jump up on my throne with me, have your place on my lap, but understand something, son or daughter, I love you way too much to leave you where you're at. You You might be dealing with some issues. You might be dealing with some issues that the gospel intends to cut away. And at some point or another, this sword and this peace issue will be brought to the forefront. We won't have much peace when he's cutting away those things that need to be cut off of our life. We won't have much internal peace with ourselves and others as Jesus is forming and fashioning us into his image. But he says, I've come to bring that sword to cut and to divide. The sword, the sword that is set upon this earth is the preaching that's poured into the hearts of men that Jesus comes through the preaching of the word to pour into the hearts of you and I that we would find those moments, those singular points where he is cutting away the fat, where he's getting to the core issue. This is why this statement is so difficult. It's not difficult because it's a dichotomy where he says, I've come not to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. We can get over that contextually. We can understand what he's saying. But the moment we understand what he's saying, now we're faced with the real problem, with the real dilemma. Am I going to live it out? Am I going to do what he says? If he's going to be a sword in my life and not intend to bring peace, but to cut away everything that's not of him, to bring a sense of turmoil in my life as I'm being molded and reshaped into the image of Christ, am I going to submit to that kind of work? There's a Bible concept that we have what we have in our faith life And some of us think that it's because we have measured up a level of faith. Oh, we've done all these wonderful things. We believe God. We've prayed. We've given. We've served. We've done all the religious things that we're called to do. You know, Jesus really doesn't talk on those terms. He talks on these terms, those that obey me. They, those that obey me and keep my commandments, they're the ones that are with me. Those that obey me, those that do what I tell them to do, those that are are soft, to the voice of God in their life, those that hear it and do it, those are the ones that are on my side. I don't believe it's necessarily the level of faith in which some of us have success and others have failure. I believe many times it's a moment of obedience. Are you doing what he's asked you to do? Understand there are many things that happen in life that are beyond our control. I'm not saying that. But there are moments in life where we know that we've stepped out and we've done something or we haven't done something and we've totally gone against what God asked us give you an example in my own life where God was cutting away and it literally became a true cut and scar on both my arms. I used to work, I used to love to work out. I used to work, it doesn't look like it now, but I used to work out all the time. 
I mean, I used to be in the gym all the stinking time. I was love throwing up heavyweights, you know, the, the altar of iron thing. You know, I'm, I'm lifting those big juggernaut, whatever, meathead weights. And I'm thinking, I'm, I, you know, I looked in the mirror. I really wasn't that big, but I thought I was huge, you know. And, and I don't know, I, my wife did too. I think that's why she married me. <laughs> it's funny, early on in our, in our marriage, I was in really good shape. And I used to talk about this pose that I would hit flex in front of her. And I couldn't do it very often because it was called the lineage starter. And I knew we were going to have a bunch of kids if I hit that. Hit that. <laughs> She's not here to, to defend herself. So it's true. Regardless of what she says, it was true. It happened. Anyway, I used to work out all the time, all the time. And I, I, and, and I worked out so hard that I had tendon damage in my elbows. And I w- had this severe issue of tendonitis to the point that it would wake me up and I just a burning in my elbows. I didn't stop working out. Are you kidding me? No. You just sacrifice your body on the altar of iron. You go at it. You go harder. Next time you work through it, no pain, no gain. Well, that worked until I tore both tendons off my arm. The Holy Spirit was speaking the moment I felt the pain. He's saying, you idiot, stop doing that. I said, no, you know what you're talking about. You know, the reason God wanted me to stop was not because of the tendon damage, although that was a byproduct. The reason God want me to, wanted me to stop was become, because this had now elevated to a status above him. I'd much rather go to the gym than crack my Bible open. And I lied and said I listened to podcasts. Everyone who says they go to the gym and listen to podcasts, you liar. There's only about 1% of you that do that. Anyway, you're all going, well, he doesn't know that. Anyway, yeah, I know. And I would get some rumblings. It's all right. I know it's not true. You don't listen to your Bible either. Most people don't. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we'll get, you're too busy looking at other people walking by. That's what really happens in the gym. Anyway, so I, I had this huge burning issue. Hey man, it's the Bible. It cuts, right? I just said that. Don't get on me. But I had this huge burning issue to the point the tendons actually tore and the Holy Spirit is speaking the entire time. Stop doing this. Change the pattern of your life. You'll be benefited from it. You won't go through the fire if you'll just stop. Nope, Jesus, I want to do what I'm doing. I'm comfortable where I'm at. I like my habits. What happened? One day I went to the gym, went to pull some weights over my head, pop both tendons off. Dropped the weight, got up, and I'm working out with another pastor. And I looked at him, I said, I think I need to go to the hospital. He's like, all right, you want me to follow you? I'm like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think I can drive. I don't think I can move my arms. Like, what am I supposed to do when you don't have any movement from your elbow down? And in that moment, I also had a six-month-old baby. My wife had one. Now she had another baby. We had a three-year-old, a little over a three-year-old. So I put all kinds of heavy work on her, and it taxed our marriage. It taxed the church. In fact, there's one thing we found out. People don't like to see their pastor hurt. We lost three families in a month. What we were doing, pulling items in and out of a trailer so that we could meet in the cinema space that we were meeting in. Everything in my life got turned upside down. I couldn't drive. I couldn't bathe. Couldn't wash myself. The doctor gave me 30-degree bend in my right arm so that my wife was excluded from one activity, and she thanks God every day she was excluded from that one activity. Yeah, some of you got it. Some of you will get it when you go home. It hurt. It hurt very bad. All because I wasn't willing to allow the sword to cut away. He was about to uproot my activities. He was about to uproot my my world. He said, I want to cut it off so that you're better. And I said, no, I like the way I am. 
said, I see the future and you don't. What's coming, you're not going to like. The peace of Jesus is peace that rests in truth. The peace that we get in the Scriptures, the peace that we're called to be peacemakers, is the peace that we get as we rest in the truth of the Gospel. Nothing else. You can't rest in the lies of this world and call it peace. You can't rest lying to another person and call it peace. You can't say that we're at peace even though I don't like you, but I'm going to fake it and put on a smile and act like I do just because I want to bring a sense of peace. You can't have an argument with your spouse and just wash it under the rug and hope it goes away and call that peaceful living. There's a sense of tension that comes when we live that way. Thomas Aquinas, who actually, St. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote about this scripture in his commentary, this particular scripture, said this, so it must be said that there are two kinds of peace, namely good and bad. There's a good sense of peace that is brought to the earth, the peace that we have when we live in the truth of the gospel, that the gospel reigns and rules in our heart and our life, that what Jesus tells us to do rules and reigns, when the Holy Spirit whispers, we do what he says to do, we don't ignore it because the moment we ignore it, we live outside of the peace of God, outside of the truth of his word. And what happens? Ultimately, devastation becomes our way. But there's a bad sense of peace where we're not true to ourselves, and we're not true to the gospel and we're not true to who God is making us. Some of you have allowed yourself to live in a sense of peace because you want to be a peacemaker. You believe Jesus brings peace to planet earth and you don't want to rock the boat because in rocking the boat, you feel like you're not fulfilling the scripture of who Jesus is and that he has come to be a peacemaker in your life. Nothing could be further from the truth if you're not living in the truth of the gospel. So what does this mean? When someone says, I have a stance on religion, you know, I believe that Muslims pray to Allah and Allah is just the Arabic word for God and therefore they're all saved just like we are. Wrong. I'm sorry, that's not true. There's a huge history that divides who the Muslims pray to in this idea of Allah and who Judeo-Christians pray to in the idea of Yeshua. There's a huge difference. Or Yahweh. There's a huge difference. There's a massive distinction culturally, historically, and the moment we just appease everyone and bring the two together, we live in a false sense of peace. We actually live in a sense of peace that ultimately will take more from you than will add to you. It's the same thing when someone says, I don't believe Jesus heals every time. Jesus heals, but you know, sometimes he's off his game and he misses a basket here and there. Doesn't heal everybody. We don't know why, because God's ways are above our ways. And we theorize and we spiritualize all kinds of reasons why the gospel isn't true for our situation. The gospel isn't true for our issues. The gospel isn't true for what we're going through. We theorize and we call it peace. We settle our hearts and we call it peace. You know, I've known one thing to be true my whole life, that God's word is true and every man is a liar. And that if he says something, he means it indefinitely. I know this about the concept of healing, that if I die of sickness, it doesn't mean God doesn't heal every single time. It's hard to understand, right? That if I were to pass, if I were to get sick, coronavirus hits my body and I die, I become one of the statistics, the 15 or whatever that have passed in the United States. I become one of those that we read about in the news and I've been believing and praying that God heals. If in that moment, I don't receive my healing, Jesus still heals every time, all the time. It doesn't sound like it fits our, our understanding what healing is. Maybe because we have a short-sighted understanding. 
It doesn't sound like it fits the narrative of what God wants to bring to his children. All good things come from God. Maybe we don't get the full picture, and so we start to theorize his ways are above our ways. We start to theorize God wanted a new angel for his heavenly garden. And we don't hold to the truth of the Scripture. No, it is what it says it is. I don't, I don't always have the full function and understanding of why things turn out differently than I thought they should. But I know His Word is never, ever failing. The Gospel was and will be divisive. When we talk about healing, it's divisive. When we talk about the gospel as far as it centers on Jesus and he is the only way to heaven, it's divisive. When we talk about the idea that God wants good things for our lives and he intends good things for his children, that is divisive. When we give the idea the gospel, that the gospel that we serve under Jesus Christ is prosperous, it becomes divisive. One of them prosperity preachers, well, yeah, the gospel is prosperous. In every way, shape, and form, we give our dead self, our baggage over to Jesus. He gives us new life. He gives us life more abundantly. Everything about that story is prosperous. Everything about what we said is a level of prosperity. Yet for so many people, the word is just divisive. There are so many stupid things that we bring to our Christian faith that become divisive. Why? Because we would rather theorize we would rather intellectualize. We would rather try to fit Jesus into our mold than understand he's still a God who brings a sword and in bringing a sword, he might disrupt patterns in your life. He's still a God who cuts to the quick and to the core of the issue. He's still a God that is very intent about dealing with your heart. Will we let him? Will we let him cut away? In fact, later on we hear this idea of the circumcision of the heart that Jesus cuts away what's not meant to be there, to reshape us and to mold us into his image. The peace of Jesus is a peace that results in truth, even if it's proven to be divisive. The truth of Jesus Christ results in peace. There is no greater peace and satisfaction you'll have in the world than when you, when you tell other people the understanding of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. There is no greater sense of peace and fulfillment that when you speak that truth into someone's life, even if it's divisive at first, I don't agree with you. I don't believe you. I don't understand how it works. I'm not sure that you aren't just a religious bigot trying to beat me over the head with your religion. The moment their heart changes, there's a sense of peace that rushes into your life and to that relationship. And it is a peace and fulfillment that you can't find any other place. That when we truly understand what it is that Jesus came to bring peace for, to lead us and to guide us into all truth, and that ultimately brings peace to our life, yet he comes with a sword to cut away anything that isn't of his will, that isn't of his way, that isn't of his command. That when we understand these two thoughts and how dichotomous they seem to be, when we understand them and we see them operating in our life, we raise the game to a new level. Now we know what it is to stand before God and say, I, I really messed up. I didn't do what you asked me to do. I want to come and be humble. In that moment, I tore both of those tendons off my arms. I heard the pop. I was sitting in the emergency room. Hadn't had the drugs yet. My arms were starting to swell and turn black and blue. I looked over at my elbows and I thought, this is not good. And I thought, you know, God, I really should have listened. He said, you think? So I really should have listened two years ago when the pain started. So yeah, that would have been good. So God, I really should have listened about a year and a half ago 
when it was so, my elbows were so on fire, they'd wake me up at night. Yeah, that probably would have been smart. God, I should have listened a week ago when, when, I, when I looked at the, the dates on the calendar and realized I'm not as young as I used to be. Yeah, would have been good. But you know, in all of those moments where I disobeyed, in all those moments where I walked away from the voice of the Holy Spirit, in all those moments, He cared for me and loved me. As a result of the tearing of the tendons on my arms, the doctor told me that I'll probably never be able to do a push-up. I will probably not be able to hold my child, my infant child, up to my waist for very long, if at all. I thought, well, at least I'm out of diapers. Hallelujah. But he said, you probably can't do that very long at all. You're probably not going to play things like football and baseball with your kids because the tendon surgery is good. It'll give you mobility and function, but it's not going to let you be who you were. After the surgery and after months of rehab, God spoke to me and said, you remember that, what the doctor said, the list of things you couldn't do? I said, yeah. He said, you believe those? I said, no, nah, I don't know if I should. He said, you're right, you shouldn't. He said, you need to believe me. I'll heal the whole thing if you'll let me. You're going to go through surgery. You didn't do what I asked. You're going to go through this path. You've already been down that road. You've already not listened. You've already torn the tendons. We've already fixed it through medical means, but now we can take it to another level. Happy to say I can do a push-up if I ever really wanted to. <laughs> and yes, I finished diapering that kid until he was out of diapers. I cleaned a lot of diapers. Guys, if you can gut a deer, you can change a diaper. Hallelujah, women, right? I did all, I did all the fatherly things I, I can do. I, I've played ball with my kids, thrown the football, thrown the baseball around. There's no limitation. Sometimes I get aches and pains here and there, but I pray about it and pray and thank God that I'm whole and healed. So even in our mess-ups, even when he's cutting, even when he's cutting things off of our life that shouldn't be there, even when he's getting to the quick, to the core of the issue, and we don't listen, and we fall prey. We fall prey to our own devices. Even in those moments, he heals, he restores, he brings back. So understand that though he comes with a sword and he comes to disrupt our life, to unsettle things that need to be topsy-turvy and turned over on themselves, even though he comes to force us in line to the gospel, even though he comes with a, with a sure intention to make us more and more like Jesus, even though he comes, he doesn't come without compassion. He doesn't come without love. He doesn't come as a God who would push off the children, yet he says, let those children come. Let the children come to me, sit on my lap, get good with the Father. So today, maybe you're at that place where you thought you were in a sense of peace, but it was a false peace. It was a bad peace. You weren't really at peace with God. You were just trying to appease people around you. And in doing so, you haven't lived the full life that you could or you should. You know you're not doing what God's asked you to do. Today's a day to repent. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm going to live out the full nature of this gospel. I'm going to live what you called me to. I'm going to be who you've called me to be. And God, it might, might be hard for me right now. It might even upset some of the relationships in my life, but I know ultimately that only real peace comes as I, as I live out the truth of the gospel. If that's you today, and take a moment as we pray, as we close out, repent. Jesus, I'm coming back to you. I'm going to be everything that you called me to be. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask in this moment that you convict our hearts and our lives. We ask that you would convict us to all truth. God, help us see areas and moments in our life where we haven't, God, we haven't listened, where we've put your word off, where we, where we haven't allowed the sword to come in and cut away the fat in our life. God, bring us to those moments where we haven't allowed ourselves to be carved into the image of Jesus. God, in those moments, in this moment today, 
God, we repent. We're sorry. We're not perfect people. We, you never intended us to be perfect. But God, come in and rescue us from our own stupidity. God, come in and rescue us from our own brokenness. God, come in and rescue us from our own disobedience. We give it over to you. Remake it, Lord. In areas where we have failed you time and again, remake us. God, it might not be easy. We know that. We know there might be a, a disturbance in our life. That's okay. God, we know it might even be sharp and it might cut as you cut away relationships, as you cut, as you cut away wants, as you cut away habits, as you cut away desires. It's okay, Jesus. We're going to give ourselves over to you because we know ultimately that's the real way to have peace. So God, come and be a peacemaker, a kingmaker in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.